Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter 3, where we are going to be learning about the power of Christ's resurrection and how it relates to us as believers. There are lots of people in the world today that believe in some sort of God. A lot of people that think they're going to heaven and believe in some sort of life hereafter think that when they die, there's going to be something better. Some belong to pagan religions. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe in the Bible. But there is a surprising number of people who do say they believe in Jesus and who do say they believe the Bible. They would tell you that they are going to heaven. Many people have what we might consider or call pseudo-Christian beliefs. Christians kind of tacked on there because they say they believe the Bible. People like uh, Mormons and Christian scientists and Jehovah's Witness and Roman Catholics and Bible-believing conservative Protestant Christianity. And you probably weren't expecting that last one. But it's true. There are professing Christians all over the world who attend Bible-believing churches that actually reject Jesus and the true gospel, though they profess with their lips that they believe it. And it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing to think that you could say with your lips, this is true, but believe in your heart something that was false. Somewhere along the line, people get drawn into church and they become churched. They become Christianized. They learn all the jargon. They become inoculated to the true gospel of Christianity. They become immune to the truth and petrified in their unbelief while they continue on in their Christian religion. They are like Judas who have seen it all. They've done it all. They've been there. They've walked a walk and truth be told though, it would be better if they had never been born than to die trusting in what they believe. It is common problem in Bible believing churches today, as it was a common problem in the new Testament that people like to Mix the gospel with their good works. In particular, in the text before us in Philippians, there was a certain group called the Judaizers. The Judaizers were a group of people who said, we believe in Jesus. We believe he is the son of God. We believe he's the Messiah. And you have to get circumcised, you have to keep the law of Moses, or you can't go to heaven. And by doing this, they nullified the gospel. And they were trying to creep into the church of Philippi, and they were using their profession of faith in Jesus Christ as a key to open the door. And the Philippians are saying, oh, these guys say they believe in Jesus. They say they believe is the Messiah. I mean, come on in. And then as soon as they come in, they start spreading their damning doctrines that, oh, yeah, you know, let me show you here over here in Genesis 17. You need to be circumcised. 
or you can't be part of the people of God. If you want to be part of the covenant that God made to Abraham, you need to keep the law of Moses. You need to do these things. And if you aren't, you can't get into heaven. Sure, you're saved by grace, but that grace means that you keep the law of Moses or you won't be saved. And Paul, since he was an apostle and since he was a shepherd and since he was commissioned to protect the church of God. And he comes after these guys with guns blazing. And that is what we see in Philippians chapter three, verses two through eleven. So follow along as I read this section. Paul says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death in order that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. This entire text is a very interesting text. I mean, if you read the preceding context, Paul is just cruising along and talking about joy and unity and all of these nice, wonderful things. And when he gets to verse two, it's like he does a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He comes out and he deals with these false teachers in a serious way. And this entire text is a spear pointed right at them. And the point of that spear is the resurrection. And for this morning, I want you to see three exhortations you must know and submit to if you are going to experience Christ's power and his resurrection in your life. The first is this. Beware of false teachers. Look at verse two. Notice Paul says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. I like what J. Vernon McGee says. He's not speaking to mailmen here. Three times Paul uses the same command, beware, a present active command. Keep on the lookout, watch out for, or consider very carefully. These false teachers had wormed their way in, and Paul says, watch out for these dogs. In New Testament times, this phrase dogs was a very derogatory term. It was almost a swear word. If you called somebody a dog, that was a very low term. I mean, even today, if you were called a dog, it wouldn't be good. But in that day, the dogs walked around in packs. 
They were mangy, dirty, mongrelly beasts. And they would just attack animals and sometimes attack people. And they were considered unclean and unholy. And it became an idiom, a slang term to describe people who are just the worst of the worst. In Matthew 7, 6, it speaks of those who are rejecting the gospel as dogs. In 2 Peter 2.22, Peter describes those who have received the truth and then turned back into their sin as dogs that have returned to their vomit. Those who trust in their good works and their observance of the law of Moses, of their association with Israel, Paul says these Judaizers are dogs. Secondly, he calls them evil workers. He's not talking about three different groups here. He's talking about one group from three different angles. They are also evil workers. That is, they are laboring in an evil, bad, or morally corrupt way. Why? Because they're trying to get the Gentiles to get back into Judaism. They're trying to take these Gentile converts and say, hey, come back to the old way. Get circumcised, keep the law of Moses, keep the feasts, keep the festivals, keep the Sabbath. Go back to the shadow instead of the substance. And in God's sight, because they are trusting in their good works to save them, they are evil workers. Third, he says, beware of the false circumcision. Interesting word here. It literally means beware of the mutilation or those who mutilate themselves. You see, what they were doing is they taught these Gentiles, listen, you need to be circumcised. So then they would circumcise themselves and then they would say, hey, I'm in now because I did this thing. I did this deed. This makes me right before God. And this is the exact problem they had at the first church council mentioned in Acts 15. In verse 1. Luke records some of the men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved, which tells us they were trusting in what to save them. Their circumcision, not Christ. And Paul is making a play on words here. It's pretty interesting. In the Greek, the word false circumcision or mutilation is the word katatome. The regular word for circumcision is paratome. And so he is saying, beware of the catatome, for we are the paratome. We are the true. And the emphasis is on we. We. That is believers. That means all of you here today who know Jesus Christ as your savior and are true believers in Christ. You are the true circumcision. Not those people. Sure, they're circumcised in the flesh. Sure, they're keeping the law of Moses. But they are those who have mutilated themselves for no purpose. Paul makes this clear in Romans 2, 28 and 29, where he says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Paul taught in Romans 2 that, listen, you want to be a true Jew? You want to be a true of the true circumcision? You have to repent and get your heart right with God. And this is taught in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 10, 16 and Jeremiah 4, 4 and other places. God didn't want them to merely have this outward symbol 
of submitting to the covenant of Abraham and association with the people of God. He wanted them to have a humble, repentant, submissive, obedient heart. And the outward symbol was to be a symbol of what was going on inside. Of course, the Judaizers had nothing going on inside. They were dead inside. But they had the outside right, and they were trying to take those in the church and take those who were interested in Christ and lead them into this false doctrine. So Paul says, you're dogs. You're evil workers. You're the mutilation. From three different angles, he hammers them. And just as the Philippians needed to be aware of Judaizers, you need to be aware of people, too, in the church who are this way. I'm not talking about cults. I'm talking about Bible-leaving churches. There are those who are very convinced that they're going to heaven because of what they've done. You know, you need to be baptized if you're going to be saved. Baptized in water. And if you aren't, and if you aren't dipped once or dipped twice or sprinkled or whatever, you aren't going to heaven. You've got to have that happen. You must read your Bible every day. Or you can't go to heaven. If you don't abstain from these foods, you can't go to heaven. If you don't go forward at an altar call, you can't go to heaven. If you don't pray the sinner's prayer, you can't go to heaven. You insert any other work, any other religious trick or gimmick or any other thing, either prescribed in the Bible or not prescribed in the Bible. And I tell you this, God wants you to know none of that can save you. None of your good works can save you. It it just doesn't work. So some of you may be asking yourself, well, then, so what does save you? What does make you right before God? And you know what? That's our second point. Look at verse three. Paul creates this brilliant argument. Now, just stop and think here. He's dealing with Judaizers, those who are trusting in what they've done to get them into the kingdom of God. And so Paul begins By saying, watch out for these guys. Remember who we are. And he says this, for we are the true circumcision. And he says, we are the ones who worship in the spirit of God. Listen, if you're going to drive across the country in a car, and this is pretty complex, but you need to have a car. If you're going to worship God in the Holy Spirit, you've got to have the Holy Spirit. That's it. I mean, as simple as it is, that's the case. And you know what? Unbelievers don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have God's Spirit in them. They don't have any sort of spiritual life about them. Paul says in Romans 8 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul says, By one spirit, we were all baptized or placed into one body. We were all made to drink of one spirit. If you don't have that spirit, you don't know Christ, you can't worship God in spirit. He says, so listen, Judaizers, we are the true circumcision. Secondly, we are the ones who are worshiping God in spirit. Not only that, he says, look at the text, We glory in Christ. You're glorying in your works. You're glorying in your circumcision. You're glorying in your keeping of the law of Moses and your association with Israel. Well, guess what we're glorying in? Jesus. That's what we glory in. That's what true believers glory in. Now, let me ask you, does that describe you? 
What are you glorying in? Your works, your heritage, your Christian parents, your Christian school, or Jesus Christ. Third, he says, or fourth, he says, the true circumcision is described as those who put no confidence in the flesh. You go up to the average person on the road, you walk up to somebody and say, hey, how's it going? Yeah, you going to heaven? Now, some people are going to say, look at you and go, well, no, I don't believe in heaven or I don't believe in God or whatever. But you find somebody who says they're going to heaven. You say, how come? And then you usually get this kind of answer. Well, you know, um, I think so. Um, I hope so. I'm pretty sure. And then you ask him this. Why? I love to ask that question. And sometimes my pastor, they expect me to ask it. So I do. So, so why are you going to heaven? And then, you know what? Out comes a list of works. I've been pretty good. I grew up in a Christian family. My parents are Baptists. I used to go to church. I used to go to Awana. They give you a whole list of their most prestigious accomplishments. And you know what they're telling me? I'm not a Christian. I'm deceived. I have bought into the same lie as the Judaizers were teaching. And I'm not going to heaven. Remember that Paul was once a very religious unbeliever. And this is the brilliant part of his argument. He says, beware of these people. Remember, Christians are these this way. And then Paul says, okay, okay. All right. You want to you want to get into the ring with me? Do a little good works boxing. I can do that. I can do that. I can, I can get in there. You want to, you know, want to go at it with some good works? Okay. Look at verse four. Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Put up your dukes. That's what he's saying. And so in verse five and following, he lists seven of his finest fleshly achievements and characteristics. And notice the first thing he says. He was circumcised the eighth day, verse five. You see, a lot of these Judaizers were converts. They were Greeks who became Jewish converts. And so they were circumcised way later in life. And Paul says, hey, baby, as soon as I could be circumcised right after being born as a Jew, my mom and dad circumcised me. So I got that going for me. He says, not only that, look at the text again. And I'm of the nation of Israel. You're just Gentiles who have converted over. I want you to know I have the blood of Abraham flowing through my veins. You have that? I do. Third, in addition to that, he was also of the tribe of Benjamin. Ooh. Now you might be thinking, so what? Wasn't Benjamin almost wiped out? Listen, Benjamin was the one patriarch born in the land of Israel there. The one, the only one. Not only that, Benjamin had fame as great warriors and archers. Not only that, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin was the only tribe that didn't go apostate when the 10 other tribes went apostate 
and followed Jeroboam into a false system of worship. Benjamin and Benjamin alone stayed in the south and aligned themselves with Judah. So Paul's got that going for him. Hey, I know, you know, even if you were a Jew, are you a Benjamin? I am. And not only that, guess who the first king, what tribe the first king was from? Benjamin. That's my tribe. But that's not all. Not only do I have that, but I want you to know I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. You know, some of you are Greeks and you've converted to Judaism. I want you to know I speak Hebrew fluently. I read Hebrew. When I grew up, I want you to know I went to a Hebrew synagogue where they preached and taught in Hebrew. And I understand it. I still understand it. Can you do that? And at that time, the Hebrew language was starting to become extinct. And so this was a big boast. In Galatians 1.14, Paul said, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. I kept all the feasts. I did every little jot and tittle. You doing that? You doing that? Look at the end of verse 5. Not only am I a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says, as to the law, a Pharisee. And that just said it all. That was like the ultimate trump card. Pharisee. You a Pharisee? The Pharisees were the most conservative and disciplined keepers of the law in all Israel. They were fanatics. They studied the law of Moses. They dissected the law of Moses. They counted up every letter in the law of Moses on every line and every page. I mean, they were just fanatics and memorized huge portions of it and quoted it and boasted in it and kept every jot and tittle and talked about it and argued about every little bit of minutia. That was their life. In Acts 22.3, when Paul was defending himself before the Jews, he pointed out that he was of the strict education under the most famous rabbi of the day, Gamaliel, who was well-respected with all the people. He says, hey, listen, guess who was my teacher? It was Gamaliel. That's who I was educated by. When Paul was defending himself before the Jewish Sanhedrin in Acts 23, 6, he said, I am the Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. Not only am I a Pharisee, I'm second generation. I come from a two-generation pharisaical family. When he was defending himself before King Agrippa in Acts 26.5, he described himself belonging to the strictest sect of our religion. And he said, I lived as a Pharisee. He was no passive Pharisee, no backsliding Pharisee. He was of the strictest cutting-edge fanatic. Judaizers, you got that going for you? I do. Look at verse six. He says, and to zeal. Now, you need to know that the Jews, they really honored zeal. Zeal was something big. There were a lot of Jews, but there were few zealous Jews. And the more zealous you were, the more you were honored. I mean, if you were really into obeying, they thought, "Ooh, that guy's godly. And Paul, he was on fire with zeal. He was so passionate with zeal. That he says, look at what the text says. I persecuted the church. Acts 8, 3 says he began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Now, I could just see all of you leaving here today, going out into the neighborhoods here, knocking on the door. Hey, you a Christian? No, then you're coming to prison. 
I mean, can you imagine that? That's what Paul was doing. Acts 9.1 says he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was so zealous. He was not content with Judaism until Judaism had stomped out everybody else in the world. You're either a Jew or you're dead. Just like the fanatic Muslims of today. You either convert to Islam or you die or we die trying to convert you. That's it. And that's what he was like. Fanatic. Fanatic. He's got that going for him. Okay, you got zeal. Seven, and finally he lays down his royal flush here. He says, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, blameless. Now, Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's not making some idle threat here. This is not hyperbole. And he's just trying to say, well, you know, I was blameless, you know, kind of. He did it. He kept all the regulations, all the minutia. He did everything exactly according to the law. With exacting precision. He had the bloodline. He had the heritage. He had the education. He had the zeal, he had the works, and he had squeaky clean observance to the law of Moses. Now get this. The Judaizers are there going, we're circumcised. And Paul is just dwarfing them. He is dwarfing them under the shadow of the mountain of his credits and personal achievements. I mean, his his whole... Credit rating was so huge it would make any one of those Judaizers froth at the mouth and fair to be led away. He would, they were just, oh man, I wish I had that. And he just dwarfs them. And then notice what he says in verse 7. This is brilliant. Right when he has them drooling at the mouth over his incredible accomplishments, he says, but whatever things were gained to me, whatever things I, this is an accounting term, whatever things I thought were gain and credit to me, I want you to know I have counted them as loss. What? You see, what happened here is Paul had this huge reversal in his life. He was trusting in this mountain of good works and heritage and education. And then he realized that in order to gain Christ, he had to lose it. That this couldn't save him. It was not going to make him righteous before God. And the term loss here, which appears in verse 7 and twice in verse 8, is a term used of ships that would sink at sea and all their cargo would be lost. He says, all that stuff, I just considered it sunk to the bottom of the ocean down to Davy's locker. It's gone. It's loss. Why? Look at the end of verse 7. For the sake of Christ. Why did he do that? Because Christ is the pearl of great price. Price, uh, Christ is the, the precious treasure hidden in the field that the wise man sold everything to acquire. And that's what Paul is saying he did. And as a knockout punch, just to make sure he can go one step further, just to make sure that they know that he has way more works than they ever did, but he pitched them. He says, not only that, look at verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost. Now he's gone beyond him. 
He says, okay, you take my huge mountain and take anything else you want to get from the world. Any other good works, any other education, any status, any privilege, any fame, any holiness that man can achieve in his own flesh. uh, Anything you want, mound it all up, mound it into a huge pile. And I'm going to take all of that and I am going to consider it lost at sea. Why? He says again, look at the middle of verse 8. In view of the surpassing value, there is a surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered, past tense, the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. He says it over and over again. And now he uses a new term. Now it's rubbish. The Greek word is skubalon. It means manure, feces, or rotten scraps of food left over that you would scrape off and put into the trash, and then they start reeking. You know how it is. He builds up his incredible personal credits. He adds to it all the credits that this world could possibly add to them. And he says, you know all that? Big stinky pile of manure. That's what it is. If you think that's going to get you to heaven, you're wrong, Judaizers. And you're wrong, anybody who claims to be anybody, whether it's conservative, Christian, or whatever, who trusts in their good works. It can't save you. Look at verse 9. Paul tells us why. He quit trusting in his privileges. It was so he might be found in him, not having a righteousness of his own derived from the law. He's everything the Judaizers are teaching. Paul is turning it right around and saying, and you know what? We aren't even going there. We aren't even going there. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. We can't even go there. There is no righteousness of your own. You can't earn your way to heaven. You can't get to heaven from the road of good works. It doesn't lead there. It leads to a worse place. But notice there is a little three-letter word in the middle of verse 9, but. And this is a very strong contrast word, but. That which is through faith in Christ. That what? That righteousness which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of Faith twice, he says here through faith and on the basis of faith and faith isn't just believing in facts. Faith is believing in facts and being willing to trust in them completely. That's what saving faith is. And those facts are that Jesus died on the cross, paid the penalty for sin, was buried and rose again on the third day. And if you are willing to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus and submit to him as Lord, believing, following, living for him, you will be saved. You will be transformed. You will be made into a new creature. If you don't, you're trusting in your works. And you won't get there. And first notice, the only way you can be this right, this Righteous before God is through faith on the basis of faith. And secondly, that the source of your righteousness doesn't come from you. Where does it come from? Look at the text from God. From God. Romans three twenty four says this being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Think about that. You're thinking, what did you just say? 
being justified, that is made right before God, made righteous before God as a gift by his grace, undeserved, unearned favor through the redemption or purchasing, which is in Christ Jesus. What is a gift? A gift, something given to you. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. And Paul is saying, that's how you get saved as a gift. I mean, wouldn't it be neat if I bought you, you know, a house on the beach in Malibu for your birthday? Maybe a new Ferrari, a whole bunch of other really cool gadgets. And then said, oh, by the way, here's the receipts. Make the check out to Jack Hughes. <laughs> and you're going, well, wait a second here. That's not a gift. No, gift is when you get it, period. You don't pay for it. You don't earn it. You don't have to pay back. And that's how you receive righteousness. It is from God. It is a gift. And is based off of what Christ did for you, not what you did for Christ. Beware of those who tell you you have to do good works to get into heaven. And I'm talking about any sort of thing even required in the Bible. The Bible does say you need to be baptized. The Bible does say you need to read God's word and you need to pray and you need to serve. But anytime you start trusting in those things to save you, stinky manure. That's what you think. The only way you can squeeze through the narrow gate to heaven is if you were greased with God's grace and everything else is left behind. Everything. That's it. You can squeak through with God's grace. That's it. You're saved by faith alone. Then Paul tells us the true motivation. So, so you can't get a righteousness of your own. It has to come from God. It's on the basis of faith. But why would you, why would you take everything, this world and all your accomplishments and even your heritage and all your good works and, and consider them lost at sea and rubbish and dung? Why would you get rid of them all like that? And then he tells us in verses 10 and 11, look there, because there is a treasure that you receive when placing your complete confidence in Christ. The first is that I may know him. Now, this is an interesting thing because we might say to ourselves, well, didn't Paul already know Jesus? I mean, he did meet him on the Damascus road, didn't he? And he was an apostle. I mean, why does he say I want to know him if he already did? Because what Paul is not saying here, I want to know him for the first time. He says, I want to know him better. Those of you who are married or, you know, maybe are seeing somebody or engaged. Now you start liking somebody. You, you want to spend more time with them, right? You just meet them one time and go, Ooh, I like you, but I don't ever want to talk to you again. No, you want to see him again and again and again and again. I wanted to spend all this time I could with my wife. I still do. I mean, we could just spend forever together. We will, but we won't be married in heaven, but it would be great. Just to talk to somebody and get to know him and get to know him better and better. And this is what Paul is talking about. I want to know Jesus and I want to know him better. I want to know him better and I want to know him better. And the only place to get into a relationship where you begin to know Jesus better and better is not by trusting in your works. It's by trusting in a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith because of what Jesus did. You take a trip to the county morgue. You go strontering in there, open up a big steel refrigerator slide out a big table and there's mr smith he's a cool guy and mr smith is lying there and you know what you want to get to know mr smith because mr smith has lived to a ripe old age so you say hey mr smith how's it going but he's not in a chatting mood because he's dead 
And so you say, uh, you know, uh, tell me about your life. Tell me about your ambitions. Tell me what you think. Of course, he doesn't respond. So you decide, okay, well, Mr. Smith, since you aren't going to talk to me, I'll get to know you a little better in a different way. So you measure him and weigh him and take some pictures of him, draw some sketches. Now, let me ask you, after that, do you know Mr. Smith? Do you know Mr. Smith like his wife of 60 years knew him? No. You know about Mr. Smith. And that is how a lot of people are in the church. They know about Jesus. They know who he is. He's the son of God. Born of a virgin. Lived a perfect life. They know what he did. He died on the cross. He suffered for our sins. They know what happened after that. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. I know that. I believe those facts. They know about Jesus. But that's not what we're talking about here. When he says, I know him. The word know here is to have a personal, experiential relationship with somebody. If I spend time with you and I ask you questions and I get to know you and I know your fears and your ambitions and your hurts and those things, that's knowing you. Like a relationship between a husband and wife or your relationship with a very close friend. This is what Paul is looking for, that I may know him. The second reason Paul gives for giving everything up is that he might know the power of his resurrection. And this is what's great. I, I want you to know, I think I had about a whole sermon on just this point, And uh, I had to cut it all out this morning at about 530 um, because I had an hour and a half sermon and I didn't have that much time. Uh, but let me just give you the nutshell. Um, the word here for power is dunamis. It's the word we get dynamite from or dynamic from. And it, it's used here of the power of God himself. Paul says, you know, why I gave up all that. So I could know the divine power of the resurrection. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, well, Jack is, I mean, is that a big deal? Well, turn back to Ephesians chapter one, Ephesians chapter one, one book back from Philippians and look at Philippians one, verse 18. Now, starting in verse 15, he starts praying for the Ephesians and he's getting excited because he wants them to know what it means to be a Christian that they would have their eyes enlightened and they would know the truth and experience the truth and all these things. And notice what he says, starting in verse 18, he says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. Notice that his surpassing greatness of his power. Now, how powerful is God? He's all powerful. Now, if you are going to talk about an incredible act of God that displayed his power more than any other act, what would you do? The creation of the universe? That'd be a good one. Maybe the parting of the Red Sea? Look what Paul goes to. The power which he brought about in Christ, verse 20, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. Paul says, 
Ephesian believers, and he says to us, Christians of this present day, listen, God's resurrection power, that very power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places far above all rule and power and dominion, that power is available to you. Now, today, it is the power that helps you live life here for the glory of God. It is that power that helps you specifically, as we'll see in the following context here, endure trials. You ever have trials? I have trials. I mean, the only people who don't have trials are the people at the cemetery. You know, we have trials. Broken cars, broken relationships, broken families, health problems, people who die in our families, you know, just all sorts of things, job problems, money problems, trials. How do you deal with all that? The power of the resurrection. God's power helps you deal with that. And that's why he says that I may know the power of the resurrection because here is the great comfort in the resurrection. Listen, this world may throw a lot at you. I mean, I could take you to a place where Paul lists huge lists of all the things he suffered. Why was he able to endure that? Because of the power of the resurrection. Because you know what? Face it. If somebody comes up to you and shoots you and kills you, they drag you out into the desert and chop you up in pieces and dry you in the sun. They grind you up into powder and spread you all over the world. You know what that does to your soul? Nothing. Do you know how much that hinders you being resurrected? Not one iota. You're still in heaven. You're still going to be raised and nothing can stop it. That is why Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed the body, has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Man, once you know Jesus, you experience the power of the resurrection. And that knowing that resurrection's coming, man, gives you boldness. And you don't have to worry about those who are going to kill you. Why? Because they can't. Jesus says, he who believes... In me shall live even if he what? He dies. That's right. And so you can't get over it. Because it's always there. It's always a reality. It's always in your life. And when things get bad, what do you long for? The resurrection. I may be bad in this life, but I want you to know it's going to get real better. Way better. The third reason Paul pitched his good works, according to the text, is so he could have the fellowship in Christ's sufferings being conformed to his death. Have you ever had a real trial and you're talking with somebody and you say, gosh, you know, this has happened to me. And all of a sudden they say that happened to me, too. Really? Yeah. No kidding. And it's comforting to know that somebody else has been there. Well, I don't care how bad you're suffering here on earth. Have you ever been crucified? And scourged and nailed to a cross. You see, Jesus is there. And when you are hurting, he is able to fellowship with you because he's been there, baby, in a worse way than you. And he wants to give you his grace. He is the God of all comfort and he can comfort you because you have fellowship with his sufferings. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you are to rejoice. I love it in in. uh 
In Acts chapter 5, when the apostles, after being beaten for preaching the gospel, they leave rejoicing that they were accounted worthy for suffering for the name of Christ. I hope I'm there. I hope you're there. And they were able to do that because of the power of the resurrection. Do you suffer for Christ? If not, then two things are probably wrong. One, you don't know Jesus. Two, you're not living in obedience to him. Why do I say that? Because 1 Thessalonians 3, 3 says we have been destined to suffer for Christ. So if you've been destined to suffer for him and you aren't, then you probably aren't Christ. Second Timothy 3, 12 says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So either you're not a Christian or you're not desiring to live godly. You're worldly, and so you blend in, and so you don't receive any persecution. The acid test of your Christianity is when you live as lights in the world, you receive persecution. That's how it is. Now, not all Christians are persecuted in the same way and to the same degree, but all of them who pursue godliness are persecuted to some degree. And when you suffer, you are part of the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And you can gain comfort from that. Fourth and finally, the end of Paul, the goal end goal of Paul is found in verse 11. He says, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And this is the big hope, isn't it? You know, we read in the Bible of people, you know, that Elijah raised from the dead or Jesus raised from the dead or the apostles raised from the dead. But you know what happened to all those people who were raised from the dead? They all died again. Every one of them, except for one. Jesus. Jesus is the only person who's ever been raised immortal with a glorified body that is like the angels. A body that could, it feel, looked like flesh and blood and felt like flesh and blood and yet could just go through the walls. And even after he ate some fish, he went through the wall and the fish didn't drop on the floor. I don't know how that works, but I want a body like that. A body fit for eternity the end of first corinthians 15 and verse 51 and follow following it talks about being transformed and changed and given this immortal body at the resurrection and that is what paul longs for he longs to attain to the resurrection from the dead and this is a very specific phrase it's only found two places in the bible and both times it refers to believers And Paul's not talking about just being resurrected. Everybody's going to be resurrected. Believers and unbelievers are going to be resurrected. You can't escape that. Jesus said in John 5, verses 28 and 29, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did good deeds to the resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Everybody's going to be resurrected. That's not what Paul's interested in here. What Paul's interested in here is the resurrection unto glorification and eternal life in the presence of Jesus Christ. And that is our hope. You know, when Christians die and there's a memorial service and we're up there in forest lawn, there's a big hole in the ground and they're lowering down the casket into the hole and all these people are standing around. You just realize, hey... That's just their earthly shell in that box. I don't know why you spent so much money on it. The person isn't in there. They're in heaven. And you know what? There will be a time when that body is instantaneously glorified and united with their spirit. And you know, 
There's nothing to be sad about. So you went to be with the Lord. Your body went to dust. The resurrection. They come together. Glorified like Jesus. And the text that talks about this is in first Thessalonians chapter four. You can turn there a couple books to the right. First Thessalonians chapter four verses 13 through 16. The Thessalonians had some fears because some false teachers had gotten in there and told them that the day of the Lord had already taken place and that maybe they missed out on the resurrection of believers. So Paul wants to encourage them. So he says this in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Another way of saying those who have died so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. Notice that that the resurrection is what gives us hope. For if we believe that Christ died and rose again, he's the model, the example, the, the first fruits. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. That is, those who have died as believers in Christ. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then he goes on and says, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, it is described that these people partake in what is called the first resurrection. It has two stages, at the rapture before the tribulation, and then again at the second coming. All the believers are transformed, glorified, resurrected out of the grave, and turned into like Jesus was when he rose from the dead. And this is what Paul wants, and this is what every believer wants. You can't wait to get out of this Advil longing body. I mean, the older you get... You think, man, how many aches and pains am I going to get? You know, you keep having ectomies and all sorts of things. Your body starts falling apart and little skin things and starts swelling where you used to not be swelling at all. Favorite part of the day is going to bed. The worst part of the day is having to get up. You're just being prepared for the grave. And this is what Paul longed for. He can't wait to have that body where you go all day hard. And at the end of the day, you're just as fresh as when you began. Never get tired. Never wear out. Never have night. Don't have to eat to sane yourself. You're just glorified with Christ in a resurrection body forever and ever. And that's what he wants to attain to. And it doesn't come from good works. And some of you here, I don't know where you're at, but God does. What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your works? Are you trusting in your Bible reading, your Bible knowledge, all those verses you memorized in Awana, your Christian upbringing, your Christian school, anything else? Put it all in a pile. It's scubalon. It can't save you. There's only one person who can save you, and that's Jesus Christ. The only righteousness that makes you right before God comes from God on the basis of faith and faith alone. And so this Easter morning, if you have never repented of your sins, if you have never given your heart to Jesus Christ, if you've never got to the place in your life where you realize you are a wretched sinner, because you are, we all are, and that you need Christ, 
And if you've never humbled yourself and you've never said, okay, Lord, I am going to give you my life. I am going to live for you. I'm going to walk for you the rest of my life by your grace and your power. Then you need to do that today because God commands you to repent. If you die and you're trusting in anything but the way, the truth, and the life, you won't get to heaven. Jesus is the only way. The rest of you who know Jesus, I pray that you would know the resurrection power, that you would know Jesus more fully every day, that you would be conformed to his suffering when people make fun of you because you're a Christian or persecute you or you get fired or get passed up for job opportunities. You would rejoice like the scriptures command you to rejoice because you are just suffering in a small degree what Jesus suffered in a great degree. Let's pray. Father, we thank you just for this text and what we've learned about the resurrection. You are such a great God, so wonderful, so kind to send your son to die as the lamb upon the cross. And Father, we think of the Judaizers who live today. Oh, they may not be having people get circumcised, although there are still some of those around. Father, there are people who trust in other things their morality their riches their tithing their giving their busyness in the church and they are just as lost as fact more lost than people who have never even heard your name because they think they're saved and they're not father i pray that we would be aware of those people that we would Remember that if we took all the things of our life and all the things of this world and piled them up and tried to use them to get into heaven, it wouldn't work. There's only one way. That way is Jesus trusting in him, submitting to him, turning from our sins to follow him. Father, I pray that you would grant repentance to anybody here who has never done that. Save them, change them, make them into new creatures for your glory and honor and praise. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.